as we uh, come this morning to uh, the last of this short segment at the end of the Minor Prophets, we're taking three messages to look at the prophecies regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then uh, in the coming weeks I'll be looking at a couple of messages regarding the first coming of Jesus Christ. You can see why I flipped those two around, because I wanted to bring Christmas messages at Christmas time. But we're considering what the minor prophets had to say about future events in the first and second coming of Christ. As we come this morning to the subject, we're looking at the coming kingdom, and we're going to be talking about the millennial reign of Christ. Now, in the course of this message today, I want to answer some questions. What is it like? What is the millennial reign? Um, what would be like to, to be alive at that period of time? And what's the point? I mean, why even have a millennial reign of Christ? What's the big deal? In fact, as we come to it this morning, I, I just want to say at the outset that in recent times, there is a drifting away from the interest and emphasis in prophecy. Um, during the last century, the 20th century, biblical prophecy held uh, the focus of attention for much of the church in the United States, especially uh, through the, the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. I, I remember those years that, um, you know, you could hear, you could turn on the radio and hear a message about the coming of Christ at, at almost any point. There were all kind of books being written about the return of Christ. People were all excited about that. Most of it had to do with the restoration of Israel and uh, the, the, the tribulation, the rapture, and the millennial kingdom. And people were really, really excited. Well, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that in the United States, uh, in this, this hipster move in, in the faith, there is less emphasis on prophecy. In fact, the, the prevailing attitude almost seems to be um, that's not where it's at. We're more about focused on living today, uh, appreciating the uh, environment, um, kind of promoting uh, the Christian life and the arts and, and just getting into life now with Jesus and uh, this business about future events and prophetic happenings and all that kind of stuff, uh, what's the concern about that? Along with the, those in that same line, um, there is, it's not measurable. I was listening to a discussion on Moody a week or so ago about is there a resurgence or a revival of Calvinism and reformational theology in the church of the United States? And frankly, it's hard to measure that statistically. But there's a sense, there's a sense that there is a revival of Calvinism and Reformation doctrine. John Piper certainly is, uh, is leading the charge, I think, in that arena. And many, again, of younger believers are moving in that direction. Now, what I'm about to say does not necessarily include any particular person, but it's just a general statement that historically, in Reformation theology, Lutheranism and, and the Reformers and Calvin and so forth, there has not been an emphasis on a literal premillennial thousand-year reign of Christ. Traditionally, those arenas of theology have been more amillennial. I'll explain that in a moment, but it basically means there is no literal millennial kingdom. And so, I find myself today, as I'm talking to you about the thousand-year reign of Christ, speaking in a time in the church, at least in this country, when there is a waning interest in the whole subject, and a growing disbelief, that any such literal return uh, or literal thousand years will even take place. I. Howard Marshall is a well-respected uh, New Testament theologian. He has written a book called New Testament Theology, 
And this is what he says about the millennial reign in his section on Revelation. A more or less literal interpretation of the millennium seems to be ruled out because of the problems of determining where the nations come from and because a temporary kingdom of Christ seems utterly pointless. It seems to me that the hypothesis of of the temporary millennial kingdom is rather more problematic and should probably be dropped from the discussion. In other words, this thousand-year reign of Christ, what in the world is that all about? What's the big deal? Just take it off the table. It doesn't make any sense anyway. The book of Revelation was never intended to be understood literally. It's, it's simply an allegory, a story about the great war between God and the devil, the powers of darkness and the kingdom of light. And, and it was never intended to be taken in any literal sense. The point of it all is that in the end, Jesus wins. And that's really all you need to take away from the book of Revelation. Well, what about all of that? What is the millennial reign of Christ? Let's take a look at it. I mentioned I've thrown around a couple of terms, premillennialism and and amillennialism. Have you ever heard of postmillennialism? There are three views about this thousand-year reign. Let me explain them. One view is that by the preaching of the gospel and through the evangelization of the world and the mission of the church, that both politically and in every other way, the church will prevail and ultimately bring about peace and salvation, uh, at least a righteous rule throughout all the nations, and usher in a utopian society through the sheer advance of the gospel. And that will bring humanity to such a state of peacefulness and righteousness that uh, the human race will enjoy a thousand years of perfect peace and then uh, Jesus will come back and wrap it all up. That's called post-millennialism. Christ will come back after the millennium. And let me tell you, that view was fairly popular in the late 19th century, but when World War I happened, people started getting disillusioned. When World War II happened, more people got disillusioned. And then when the Cold War began and the threat of a nuclear annihilation, a lot of people got disillusioned, and we finally figured out that the world is not getting better and better. In fact, it's getting worse and worse. And the Bible says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars right up until the end of time. And not very many people today seriously uh, hold the view that the church is going to usher in the millennium before the return of Christ. So you can sort of take post-millennialism off the table. But that leaves us with two remaining choices. One is amillennialism. Now, the word The letter A at the beginning, A, means without a millennium. What people who are amillennialists believe is that the book of Revelation, as I mentioned, is largely symbolic and allegorical. It's a story. It's full of complex symbols that we'll never really understand. But it's meant to simply point out to us that there's a conflict going on. But the real kingdom of God comes when individuals get born again. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that people will get saved and that the kingdom of God will come to individuals. In fact, when Jesus preached, that's what he said, the kingdom of God has come among you. And so amillennialists say the kingdom is when people get saved and come into the kingdom. And they come under the righteous reign of Christ. And they begin to live with kingdom values and goals. And this war is raging, but in the end, 
the king wins, and everybody in the kingdom goes up to heaven. Jesus will come back, and that's it. There is no thousand-year reign. It's all over. Uh, we're living in the kingdom right now. This is the kingdom. And when the end comes, Jesus comes back, the judgment takes place, and it's all done. That's amillennialism. It largely relies on taking many passages of the Scripture and interpreting them as a figurative or allegorical idea of, uh, of um, this kingdom uh, future. What about premillennialism? What does that mean? Premillennialism is the belief that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, establish his kingdom, and then we're going to reign with him on this planet for 1,000 years of perfect peace. It believes that the scripture is literally to be taken exactly the way it says when it talks about the 1,000-year reign. I'd like for you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, just for a moment, Revelation chapter 20, and I want to show you the passage of Scripture where this is specifically referred to, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that, there should, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison for a short time and so forth. The book of Revelation is the only place in the Bible that talks about this thousand years. But it tells us very specifically that at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus returns, that Satan will be bound for a thousand years, that all the people who have died in Jesus Christ will be resurrected, that, as we've seen in other passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives in his return, bodily and literally, and he will establish a kingdom that Revelation says will last for a thousand years. Now, what will that period of time be like, and why should we believe that this is literally true? Well, as I said, the idea is that it's based on a literal understanding of Scripture. And there are many passages in the Old Testament prophets, if you'll turn back with me now to the minor prophets, to Micah, there are many passages in the Old Testament prophets that if they are literally true, have never been seen yet in human history. Look at Micah chapter 4. Some of these I've printed out for you, not all of them, but some of them. Micah chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 to 8. Wait till you find Micah. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. 
it will be raised up above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. And each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now Micah is talking about a time, did you catch it? When all the nations of the world will come to, to Zion, to the city of Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord will go forth out of there throughout all the world. And what does he say? All the weapons of war will be melted down and beaten out into utensils for the harvest. And never again will the nations war against each other. When has that happened in human history? When in human history have all the nations of the earth flocked to Jerusalem for guidance and direction? When have the nations stopped fighting with each other? Jesus said, until I come again, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars right up until the end of time. That tension is going to exist right up until He comes back. But in this period of time, all the nations have disarmed. They finally have done it. And they've all taken their weapons of war and turned them into instruments of the harvest and of peace. And nation is not warring with nation any longer. That describes a time in human history that has never occurred since the beginning. In other words, it must be a future time. Look at Habakkuk 2.4. Turn over a couple of pages. Toward the right, Habakkuk 2 and verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a future prediction. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a sea that was not covered with water? That's it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> you can't have a sea that's not covered with water. You go to the sea, it's got water on it. In other words, the whole earth will be like the ocean is covered with water. The whole earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. When has that ever happened in history of man? All the nations of the world, from Asia and Europe and Africa and South America and Australia and Antarctica, wherever there are nations, wherever there are people, wherever there's land, it's going to be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. Has that ever happened in our lifetime? When will it happen? Unless it happens when King Jesus has come back to earth and is reigning from his throne. Otherwise, we've never seen anything like this in the history of the world to date. Look in Zechariah. Turn over a couple more pages. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Zechariah 2.10 Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, listen 
to the nouns in this passage as they migrate through these verses. He says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Who's talking here? Who is this? Jesus, okay. God, this is definitely God speaking in Christ or whatever. I am coming to dwell in your midst, and many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day, and will become my people, then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Did you see that? The Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is clearly speaking of God the Father sending Jesus Christ back to the earth to dwell in the midst of Zion. And he says, and the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So in other words, God is coming a day when he sends Jesus Christ back to Jerusalem to dwell in the midst of his people. Look over in Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8 verse 1. Actually, we would like to begin in verse 3 reading. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Has that ever happened in human history? That Jerusalem has been the focus and called the city of truth. And that the Lord has returned to Zion. I don't think so. In verse 4 it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. What are we being told here? There's going to be a lot of old people in Jerusalem. (laughs) In other words, people are going to live long, healthy lives. Until they're old people in Jerusalem. But, also, verse 5, the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. They're not going to be worried about suicide bombers getting on the buses. They're going to be playing in the streets of Jerusalem without fear. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. You see, these prophets are talking about a time that has never happened to this day. When God himself is dwelling in the midst of Jerusalem, when the Israelites are enjoying peace, when amazing times are happening that all the nations of the world are looking to Jerusalem and to the king for guidance and for counsel. Never in the history of the world has this occurred unless it is talking about a future time that will be fulfilled after the coming of Christ. The real passage that I think is most fascinating, however, is not in the minor prophets, but it's in the major prophets, in Isaiah chapter 11. We've looked at some of these in the past, but it's good to bring them together this morning in one place at one time. Look in Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, 
and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked, and righteousness will be a belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now, who is this talking about in Isaiah 11? It's obviously Jesus Christ, isn't it? Clearly it's a reference to Jesus Christ coming with the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, the branch from the root uh, of Jesse. Now, look at verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Now, we're confronted here in Isaiah with a challenge. Is this literally true, or is it just a metaphor giving us such an odd, strange, unexpected picture that that all we're to get from it is this will be an unusual, peaceful time? Or is it literally true? There's nothing in the passage to suggest to us that it is not a prophecy about a future event that is to be literally fulfilled. But notice what it says. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Now, what do you think would happen if at the zoo today they were to put the lambs in the same pen with the wolves? Lunchtime. Lunchtime. (laughs) I think somebody in the first service said munchtime. But uh, it kind of comes out the same. They're not, one of them, namely the lambs, are not going to survive today, are they? The lambs run from the wolves for good reason, because the wolves want to eat them. But here it says, the wolf and the lamb will dwell together. And the leopard will lie down with the kid. Now, it's not talking about your kids. It's talking about baby goats. The leopard and the young goats are going to lie down together. They're not going to have a problem. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. So now you've got little calves and lion cubs playing together. What kind of a scenario is this? What's going on here? And then he says, a little boy will lead them. I said this before a couple of weeks ago, but just get this image in your mind. Here's lions and tigers and bears. You know, oh my. <laughs> and calves and kids and sheep and lambs. All in one big menagerie. And they're not in a pen. This child is leading them out to pasture. What an amazing kind of circumstance. And then he goes on to say, the cow and the bear will graze. Now, wait a minute. We know that cows graze, but bears grazing? You know, what's what's happening here? And the young will, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and if that were not plain enough, The lion will eat straw like the ox. So now the lions are grazing. You know, bears will eat berries and nibble on grass and stuff. But lions? Lions, he says, are going to eat straw like the ox. These vicious, carnivorous predators are going to be grazing in the fields along with the oxen. Something dramatic is going on. A nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Oh, have we heard that phrase before? When is this going to be? that the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're talking about a time when the presence of Christ is physically on the earth, 
when all the nations of the world are aware of who he is and respect him as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and in that period of time, some things are going to happen that we have never seen before. Such that all of the vicious animals are now docile and tame, and they're grazing on vegetation, not eating each other. The Millennial Kingdom will be a time period when all of the earth will be at peace, including the animal kingdom. And the people that survive the last war of the tribulation, there will be survivors, those survivors will move into this period of time when Jesus Christ himself will be reigning on the planet. And this period of time will last a thousand years of amazing peace and marvelous security and prosperity. What's going to happen, by the way, to the church during that period of time? How do we factor in? I want you to look back, uh, not back, but forward a little bit in your Bibles to Daniel. I'm not dwelling on the church this morning, but I just want to point out this verse in Daniel 7, verse 27. If you could turn over there. Daniel 7, 27. That's my focus verse, but I want to pick up at verse 25 so you know who we're talking about. Verse 25 speaks about the Antichrist in the tribulation. Daniel 7:25, And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alteration in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Now, what did we read in Revelation chapter 20? That Satan was bound for a thousand years, and all the demonic host with him. They're all locked up and bound for a thousand years. His dominion is taken away. What does the Bible call the devil right now today in this present age? Ephesians chapter 2, he is the prince of the powers of the air. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he is the God of this earth, not God, but the God of the earth, the small g, who has dominion, in essence, over all the powers of darkness, and influence in all the world. The Bible tells us in another place that the whole world lies in the evil one. And if we understand the Scriptures aright, and, and, the, and the teaching in the Scriptures about demonology, we recognize that there are counselors in every... Hall of Congress, or House of Representatives at state government, local government, national government, in the White House, in Springfield, in McHenry, all over the place, there are demonic powers who are influencing and counseling and guiding the political rulers of this world. So that the entire world is being influenced. Wall Street is being influenced. The economy is being influenced by powers of darkness throughout the world. That's why if a politician is going to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, they've got to be men and women of prayer and in the Scriptures and closely attuned to God because they're going to be getting counsel, ideas and suggestions into their minds that come from powers of darkness. The Bible teaches that. But during this period of time, when we get to this period, it says all of this dominion is taken away from the Antichrist, and the devil and all of his demons are locked up 
for a thousand years. Well, how does the world get run then? Then the sovereignty, and here's the verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Now, who's the highest one? We're back to Jesus Christ, aren't we? He's the highest one. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. But who are the people of the saints of the highest one? Who is that? Yes, born-again Christians. It's us. We're the people of the saints. Isn't that what Paul says? I, Paul, write to you, Philippians, saints according to the calling of God. I write to you, saints who are in Ephesus. Every time we turn around, Paul is addressing the saints. Who are the saints? They're followers of Jesus Christ. People who have been born again and set apart unto God. They are the people of the saints of the highest one. What's going to happen? The sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Friends, in that thousand-year reign of Christ, you and I, the church, born-again followers of Jesus Christ, in resurrected glory, will be co-regents with Jesus Christ. We will reign with Him. What does that mean? If you can, I, I told you a little bit last week about this sort of uh, uh, duality that's going on. There's people that survived the last battle and they go into the millennial kingdom along with Israel as normal people in the flesh, just like we are right now. But there's a vacuum created in the heavenly realm. There's a vacuum created in the halls of Congress and in the couches of the Oval Office. There's a vacuum created in all the kingdoms of the world because the wicked powers of darkness that have been influencing this world system are locked up. Who's going to take their place? Who's going to influence the nations? Who is going to administrate the righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ? The church. The saints of the highest one. <laughs> we will be the ones who fill all of those hallways and, and council chambers and political offices, not as the politicians, but as the counselors of the people of God reigning with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. It's a pretty amazing period of time. Now, as I wind down here to the end, I want to ask a significant question. Why? Why go to all this trouble? Why doesn't Jesus Christ just come back, resurrect the saved, judge the lost, be done with it. Cut everything off. And we enter into eternity without any of this thousand year business. In fact, that's what the amillennialists say. This doesn't make sense. Why have this period of time? Well, first of all, as I've mentioned to you, the first thing we have to do is take away a lot of Scripture and turn it into just a nice story that is a metaphor, not a literal truth. We have to take a lot of Scripture and do away with it. So if we're going to take it literally, there's coming a time unlike anything we've ever seen before. Why would God want to bring that time? Well, I think that it restores the seventh day of creation toward the conclusion of redemptive history. Let me explain what I mean by that. The church in the United States today, and I'm speaking of you and me, individual Christians, we are largely focused on ourselves. 
You know, we write books like, what is God good for? (laughs) We want to know, how is Christianity going to help me? How is it going to make me successful? How is it going to fix me? How is it going to give me prosperity? What good is God? I mean, that's our, our focus is all on ourselves. How is this going to make me have the life I want? We tend not to have a bigger picture of what God is after. We tend to miss His overarching plan. What God is about is recovering and restoring what was lost. And he is not merely interested, and I don't mean to downplay you as an individual, but he is not merely interested in saving you. He is interested in saving mankind as the bride of Christ to live with him eternally as a great company of people that are all that He originally intended for them to be. So in the process of restoring and recovering what was lost, God is going to take us back to Eden for a period of time. Now, if you'll look with me in Genesis chapter 1, I want you to see this in your Bible. Because why... Do wolves and lambs lie down together, and lions eat straw like oxes? But look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now I want to ask you something. Are we presently ruling over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth? Do we have dominion in this sense? I don't think so. I have I, I haven't met too many bears. I, I have met a few in the woods. I've never met one that did what I asked him to do. In fact, back in the day when I used to go backpacking and camping in the wilderness, I usually uh, packed an extra item that would give me more dominion. Yeah, and it was uh, packing iron, as they say, in case I met a bar. And I wanted to have something that I could tame that bear with besides my voice in case my life was threatened because they don't pay attention to me right now. In fact, man does not have dominion. What happens is most animals run away from us. Don't count on that with a grizzly, but most of them run away from us. If we do encounter a wild animal and we threaten them and they're bigger than us, we're in trouble. We don't have dominion. But God said to to Adam, have dominion. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living thing that moves. And then in verse 29 he says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it will be food for you, And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. Wait a minute. I thought that lions ate sheep. I thought they ran down, you know, the gazelles or whatever, and pounced on them and ate them. He says here, to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves, I have given the green plants for food. Do you realize in the original creation that there were no carnivores? That animals did not eat each other? They only ate vegetation? 
something has happened. And God made man in the sixth day and told him to have dominion, have rule. And his first day on the planet was, was the Sabbath day. It was the seventh day. Adam woke up in the Sabbath rest of God with all the animals around him as pets. He could play with the lions and the tigers and the leopards and the bears and the cobras and whatever else. They were all pets. They all grazed. There was no survival of the fittest. In fact, if you look at the scriptures, you find... Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation groans and yearns with anticipation, longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. When are the sons and daughters of God going to be manifested? When Jesus comes back and they're resurrected. Why does all of creation, why does all of nature yearn for that? Because what we have right now is not right. When you look around out there today at nature, I'm sure you've watched some shows, National Geographic, Animal Planet or something. You've watched shows of predators attacking their prey. I'll never forget a drama that I saw unfold one day in the park over by McHenry Dam. I saw a hawk actually capture a smaller bird in flight and snatch it away to a tree to eat it. And that bird was not flying alone. It was flying in a pair with its mate. And I watched the survivor chase the hawk. That does not make good sense. <laughs> but the surviving bird chased the hawk, crying and screaming after it and then flying around the tree while the hawk was eating its mate. Awesome, yes. If I'd been a little more on my toes as a photographer, I might have gotten some incredible shots. Beautiful, no. No. Nature is not pretty. That was ugly. Even the birds had feelings. And what unfolded before my eyes was heart-wrenching. There was loss there and sadness, even in the animal kingdom. It's not fun to be eaten, even if you're a rabbit. It's not fun. All of nature is in turmoil because the system, as it is today, is out of order. It's not right. And the whole of nature wants it to be different. Even if it cannot be articulated in words, the Bible says it's groaning for what? It's groaning for a restoration of Eden. It's groaning for a righteous man to have dominion, to take the rule. And what God is doing in the millennial kingdom is restoring what was lost in Eden. As Jesus Christ, the second Adam, comes back to reign, and all of His saints with Him, and in His authoritative rule, with the devil bound who, by the way, has been responsible in large measure for getting all of this survival of the fittest mess going, with the devil bound and Christ on the throne, not as God, he is God, but he will not be reigning as God, he will be reigning as the second Adam, the King of Kings. And as he reigns, he will bring peace to the earth and restore what was lost in Eden, and recover an environment that is completely at peace, beautiful to behold, marvelous in which to live. God is about 
restoration, redemption, and recovery. And the millennial kingdom on that end of human existence is a part of recovering what was lost when Adam sinned. God is unfolding a great plan. Part of that plan involves his personal reign as a glorified man on this earth and us with him in a thousand years of marvelous peace. I'm kind of looking forward to that. I think that's going to be a great future. And whether uh, I live to see Jesus come back or whether I die first and go into his presence and he brings me back with him, it doesn't matter. The church will all participate because Jesus will bring his bride with him in his coming and we will reign with him for a thousand years. And Israel will enjoy peace and prosperity like she has never known before. Well, I hope that you'll um, take your study guide home and look more deeply into this. The scripture says, blessed are those who love his appearing. Are you looking forward to Jesus coming back? Father, I pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are longing for the return of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would fill us with images of a future that is so amazing, so uh, incredible, that we would live passionately in the present as those who bear the light of Jesus Christ to bring as many as possible with us that we can enjoy the future and eternity together. Lord, it's only when we know where we're headed that we can really live with purpose in the moment. And I ask you to give us that guidance and inspiration. In Jesus' name, amen.